Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Allison Burke of the Good Food Institute, She's an academic advisor. Allison, how are you doing? Good. Good. Thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Sure. Um, yeah, so let's let's just dive in and just, I mean, w- tell me about the Good Food Institute. What kind of uh, work's going on there? And in particular, um, you know, what are you working on? Yeah, so the Good Food Institute is a nonprofit, and we serve as a think tank for the plant-based and clean meat and clean egg and dairy fields. So we have a team of scientists and entrepreneurs and lawyers and policy experts, and we're focused on using food innovation and markets to transform our current system of animal agriculture to transition it from factory farm animal products to plant-based and clean meat alternatives. So I'm on the science and technology team, and I work with researchers, uh, students, professors, looking at how they can take their research and apply it to plant-based and clean meat or how research that they're already doing um, in stem cells or in tissue culture, um, bioreactor development is directly applicable to the clean meat field. Yeah, I think I understand, you know, plant-based food is, you know, eat plants, but what is it, what does clean meat mean? Does that mean just, uh, you know, grow, well, not growing animals, but um, husbanding animals uh, that don't, you know, have antibiotics injected into them and and hormones, or is it beyond that? Yeah, it's even more than that. So clean meat is the idea that we can grow meat, meat that's cellularly and molecularly identical to the meat that you would currently buy at the grocery store, but that we can grow it without harming animals, and we can kind of grow it in a biological laboratory-type setting. So we can take a biopsy of cells from an animal or take a small number of cells and then use biomedical methods to culture those cells and grow them and have them replicate until they're there's enough of them until they have enough mass, basically, that they are a full meat product. And so there are companies now, um, a lot of startups and a few kind of full-fledged companies that are working on doing this and that have produced um, kind of proof-of-concept products or initial prototype products of a chicken nugget, kind of like a chicken strip, um, and of a burger. And so the idea is that by using uh, the cells from an animal's muscle, we can produce something that you know, is a product that would be made primarily of muscle tissue, um, so that it is actual meat, um, but that we're doing it in a way that's better for the environment, that uses less water, uses less energy, and ultimately doesn't require uh, animal to be killed. When you're when you're growing meat, um, you know, it's funny, I, I bet you everyone assumes that you're growing it cooked. It's weird. <laughs> I, when I picture it in my mind, I just picture a cooked steak, you know, but mm-hmm. I guess you're obviously growing it raw and you got to cook it. Um, yeah. Or is that uh, not necessarily true? Can you grow, I don't know, uh, cooked meat that's ready to heat up? Is that even a consideration or it has to be raw and then you have to cook it? For the most part, yeah, we're growing it raw because in order for the cells to be in a stage where they can grow and develop and divide, they have to be um, living cells. And so usually when you when you cook something, um, you're maybe turning some proteins, and you're killing the cells. But The nice thing about growing clean meat is that you're growing it in a sterile environment. And so a lot of the reason um, for cooking current meat products, aside from taste or aside from wanting to add different flavorings or ingredients to it, is that we also cook it because we want to kill off some of the bacteria or some of the parasites that might be in that meat. So the nice thing about growing 
a clean meat product is that you're not introducing the source of those parasites. If you're growing a clean mm. fish product, it's never been in the ocean, so it's not going to pick up some of the like sea lice or parasites that are found in fish and that can make certain types of sushi dangerous to eat. Uh, and if you're growing clean beef, you're not growing the digestive tract, so there's nothing in the process that will introduce E. coli, for example, into the product. Um, you're not growing a lot of the parts of the animal that lead to a kind of bacterial contamination. Um, so while a lot of the a lot of the companies that have made clean meat, when they present it, they do cook it because they want it to look and taste as similar to a regular traditional meat product as, as you would have it. But um, you know, one of the interesting things, for example, is that clean fish, you know, you wouldn't necessarily need to do anything different to clean fish to make it sushi grade because the whole idea of sushi grade fish is that it's kept at a certain temperature to kill off parasites that are in it. But a clean fish product would, wouldn't have those parasites to begin with because of the way it's produced. So pretty much all clean fish yeah. could be sushi grade fish. And so there are, there are certainly clean products where you wouldn't need to cook them. And those are probably the products where you're used to eating a similar meat product raw or minimally cooked. Do you think this might open up interest in eating raw meats as long as they're clean meats? Or is there is that just kind of a side small concern? Well, I think it could make doing that safer. Um, I think a lot of the food concerns that we have around raw meat products come from the fact that we're slaughtering an animal to get those products. And so there's a lot of contamination in the process of, of growing that animal and of going through the slaughter process. So I think this could be a way to make raw meat safer to eat, certainly. Um, you know, I know from, you know, I... I love meat. I eat meat a lot. Um, I mean, there's the muscle component, but what about the fat? What about the other part? You know, what when I eat a hamburger, I mean, you know, there's uh, the ground beef and it has a certain fat content. I mean, what are the elements that make up a good hamburger? You know, if I ate just zero fat in it and just pure muscle, I don't think it would be very enjoyable. I mean, what do you have to put in or what do you have to culture and grow in order to make a palatable and similar uh, product? Yeah. Yeah. If you eat something that is, is pure kind of muscle tissue without fat, it'll be pretty dry. Um, and that's been one of the complaints of, from people who have tried the initial clean meat burger that um, a scientist named Mark Post produced because it was just muscle tissue. And so when it was cooked, um, the people who kind of taste tested it said it was kind of dry. That can also be a problem with plant-based meat and the way that plant-based meat solves it and the way that clean meat might solve it is by adding in plant-based fats, so adding in coconut oil or olive oil or um, another type of, of plant-based fat to the final product. And so if you eat like a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger, that's a plant-based meat, but it also has coconut oil and it has plant-based fat in it so that it um, fills when you cook it. Another option for clean meat, though, could be to also culture fat cells. So in the same way that myocytes are the cells that produce muscle tissue, and when we culture those, we end up with something that resembles muscle. Um, adipocytes are the, sites, are the cells that produce, um, produce adipose tissue and fat cells. And so those cells are also culturable. So it's possible that we would be able to um, grow fat cells at the same time as we're growing muscle cells and um, make a product that synthesizes both cell types together. Are the clean meat uh, startups doing that or are they ignoring the fat cells? For the most part, so there are still relatively few um, clean meat startups, maybe on the order of 20. There are some that are looking into it as kind of like a, a theory to see whether that would be possible. Um, as far as I know, most of the clean meat startups are still focused on just um, the meat, but certainly they know that, that fat and also that connective tissue are key components of a final product. And so I think once the some of the difficulties in, in growing the muscle tissue are solved, fat would be a natural next place to go. 
What about, um, you know, the blood vessels that innervate all tissue? I mean, it, it, well, this is a broader question. The, the broader question is, what are the main constraints that make it difficult to grow meat, you know, to grow muscle cells? I would think it has to have a blood supply at least for a short period of time. Otherwise, the, the growing cells would die or it can't be of us, you know, thicker than a certain amount. I mean, what are the constraints you're running into where you're seeing these startups run into? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing you're right definitely is that in, in an animal, the way that blood works is it supplies nutrients and supplies oxygen and supplies growth factors to a growing piece of tissue. So when you're growing that tissue outside of the animal, you also need some way of um, supplying growth factors, supplying oxygen. And so usually the way that's done um, is that clean meat is grown in a bioreactor or a cultivator, which is basically just a tank um, where you can grow cells up to large volumes in kind of a liquid environment. Um, and that environment can also be stirred and it can be aerated. And the liquid that you're growing those cells in, the what we call the culture medium, also contains uh, proteins and growth factors um, that are dissolved into that medium and that are required for the cells to grow. So they serve a similar function as blood does in the, in the sense that they're providing um, insulin and growth factors um, sugars also uh, that the cells will need in order to replicate and divide. So one of the bottlenecks of growing clean meat is figuring out how to provide all of those nutrients to the cells um, in a way that's cost effective. So a lot of the media that's used in cell culture for biomedical applications um, ends up being kind of costly because the ultimate end of those applications is a medical product. Um, And the profit margins for a medical product are usually higher than they are for food. So there hasn't been a whole lot of effort to bring down the cost of, in particular, like the growth factors and insulin and even the basal media that has to be added to the cells for them to grow. So that's one of the bottlenecks is figuring out a way to produce these growth factors like FGF and TGF um, in a way that is going to be cost effective for the ultimate output, which is, you know, a piece of meat that maybe has to sell for just a couple of dollars a pound um, to the end consumer. Another bottleneck is figuring out how to grow pieces of meat that have a noticeable kind of structure or texture to them. So if you're just growing individual cells, you end up with just kind of a clump of cells. And that's fine if what you're going for is a product that has kind of a squishy texture to begin with, like a ground beef or like a pate um, or even something like the inside of a chicken nugget. But if you want something that has the kind of fibrous structure of a steak or of a chicken breast, you're going to need to find a way to align those cells while they're growing um, so you can grow them in a certain pattern that ends up making that texture. Um, within the body, that comes from the way that the muscle fibers grow and the way that muscle fibers orient and align. But if we're just growing individual cells, we need to give them a little bit of a guide um, or something that they can follow and grow along. And so that's called a scaffold. And so another bottleneck that companies are coming up against is figuring out a way to design those scaffolds in such a way that cells will grow along them and form the types of structures or patterns that we see in normal muscle tissue, um, but also a scaffold that will be either biodegradable or that would be edible, because eventually we're going to want to take those cells that have grown and, and put them into a product that's going to be eaten. So we can't use some of the materials that are used in medical applications to grow scaffolds um, where the cells are just going right. to be taken off the scaffold. It has to be something that's kind of food safe for them to grow on. Yeah, maybe it would be like a fat scaffold or something. Hmm, very interesting. Yeah, um, like a gel-type scaffold. Texture is very important, um, and sometimes we're starting from stem cells in order to grow these cells, and we know from previous research that the texture of the scaffold that you grow the stem cell on 
influences what type of cell that stem cell differentiates into. Um, so yeah, that's something that's being explored in terms of differentiating a cell into a muscle cell versus a fat cell versus a bone cell, anything like that. So it sounds like the first things that people will see commercially will be like hamburgers or sausage or chicken nuggets or things like that. And then the harder stuff will be steaks if it ever happens, you know, uh, a chicken breast, that kind of stuff, because it has structure and it's just more difficult to make. Yeah, exactly. It's easier to get something that has kind of more of a process texture because you're removing some of the initial structure um, from the way that the muscle was grown in the animal. So you're right, something that is squishy like a chicken nugget or like a burger is going to be easier to produce initially. I don't know if I use the word squishy. It doesn't sound too good. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, it's more pliable. (laughs) What about the the type of meat? um, You know, have have people tried beef versus pork versus goats, you know, versus chicken? Are there ones that are easier or harder? I would guess there's different challenges with each of them, right? Yeah, some of the challenges are like what types and concentrations of growth factor you're going to want to use, um, what level of of oxygenation and different parameters are best for growing that particular cell line. There are companies that are working on um, chicken, fish, pork, and beef that I know of. And most of the difference there is going to be in terms of how well studied is that cell line that you're working with. Um, Within biomedical research or, you know, cancer research, anything like that, that you think of, we work with model organisms where they've been characterized, um, all of their genome has been mapped and we know exactly how to grow them. But those model organisms are things like mice and like zebrafish and hamsters that we don't usually eat. And so when we're working with a chicken cell line, there's going to be a lot less known about that cell line. So one of the first tasks for the person working in a clean meat company is to sequence the relevant proteins in that cell line and figure out what growth conditions that cell line can be optimized for. Because usually there will be less work on that available. But one of the nice things, I guess, about this method, too, is that we're not necessarily limited by the commercial viability of growing a particular type of animal. Um, so the the types of cattle that become beef, like the Angus cow, weren't necessarily selected because that is the tastiest and best strain of cow, right? There were other factors, probably commercial factors, about who owned those cows back when the beef industry was starting, how expensive they were, how easy they were to keep on pasture. But with clean meat, we don't have any of those concerns. So we can really pick to grow based on availability of the cell line, based on interest, based on taste of the ultimate um, product, or just based on creativity. So if there's kind of an um, heirloom breed of chicken that's not really raised anymore, but that we have reason to believe would be good to eat, um, you can make clean meat out of that in exactly the same way as you would for a different kind of subspecies or breed of chicken. You know, it's interesting. I mean, probably the companies that know the most about these cell lines are the ones that are producing the most, you know, Tyson and these big factory farm type companies. I'm sure, you know, they're they're using the animals as bioreactors themselves. You know, they're experimenting to grow them as fast as they can and do all kinds of modifications to, you know, to pun intended, beef them up quick, you know, so they get the most meat out of them. Have you, have you or other companies approached the big companies that are processing billions of chickens or pigs or whatever and have spoken to them about this? Do they have interest? Do they say, leave me alone? Do they, is this, uh, you know, death for their industry? I mean, what's the dynamic there? Yeah, for the most part, they're interested. And a lot of them kind of frame the problem as they are protein 
producers or they, you know, they sell protein and they want to meet the customer where they are in terms of how they want to get that protein or where they want that protein to come from. Um, and so Tyson Foods, the largest meat company in America and Cargill, which is a meat conglomerate um, producer and seller of meat, um, they've both invested in Memphis Meat, which is one of the companies that's trying to produce clean meat. Uh, and Germany's largest producer of chicken has invested in an Israeli clean meat startup called Super Meat. Um, and yeah, for the most part, the larger, you know, meat companies there, they want to get in on the trend. They kind of don't want, you know, they want to be part of the disruption of the industry. If it happens, they don't want the industry to disrupt around them and, and change uh, the business without them being in charge of it. We also see that large, um, large food companies are investing in, in uh, plant-based meat also. Um, so like Kellogg acquired Morningstar Farms, which is the largest plant-based meat company in the U.S. And Heinz bought Boca and Nestle bought Sweet Earth. And these are all companies that make what we would think of as like veggie burgers, plant-based meat. So there's definitely interest from larger companies, too, in terms of being part of the, you know, the protein revolution. Yeah, where's going to be this this linkage? You know, like I've had veggie burgers before and, you know, they're a different, you know, again, I keep thinking of bad puns, but they're a different beast, they're a different animal than a real burger, or a real steak, you know. What do you think is going to take for these two worlds to come together where like meat eaters that just love meat are going to be like, you know, I've, I've had this clean meat stuff. It's really good. I'm just going to have that from now on. What's going to tip them so that they go to this, this you know, to the clean meat part? Yeah, I think I think the development of these products and the addition of more research, both time and funding into making a product that tastes as good or better as traditional meat and that's, you know, available and has a similar price point. Um, when we do consumer research in terms of what people choose to eat and how they make those choices, we see that the most important factors underlying that choice are taste and price and convenience, um, usually in that order. And so we think that as long as one of these products can compete with a traditional meat product on taste, price, and convenience, then we're going to see adoption of these products into the market. And kind of the poster child that we look at is plant-based milk. Um, and so plant-based milk is currently about 10% of the total milk market, which is majority dairy milk. Um, and we see that a lot of the plant-based milk adoption comes not from people who are lactose intolerant or who are allergic somehow to, to dairy milk, um, but from people who have made that comparison of taste, price, and convenience and seen that almond milk or cashew milk or um, any of the different plant-based milks, they're available in the same refrigerated case and they're at a similar price point and they you know, taste similar and that that has driven you know, that at that point, they're able to make the switch because then they can consider some of the health considerations or dietary aspects of wanting to try this new product. So we're hoping that plant-based meat you know, is, is closer to that because they have products that are currently available that people can try. We're hoping that as companies innovate, particularly around taste, um, and make something mm -hmm. like the Beyond Burger, like the Impossible Burger, where people can taste that and think that it is actual uh, beef, um, that people will make that switch it's like the turing test for beef right if you eat yeah. a regular burger and a and a man-made one you can't tell the difference that's like the you know like for computers it's for meat yeah exactly yeah that's a really good way to characterize it <laughs> and for some people you know, it's, 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 there, like bill gates tried i think the beyond burger um and thought that it was beef burger like a fast food beef burger replica so depending on i guess the sensitivity of your palate for some people the impossible burger the beyond burger is already passing that that meat curing test. Okay, very cool. What um in terms of manufacturing methods, uh, I mean, what seems to be 
getting us there the fastest. You know, like I, I picture it in my mind, you know, if you're going to do ground beef, um, you know, what if you grow little tiny pieces of meat, you know, millions of them, and then you just drop them all together into like a hopper and that becomes the ground beef, you know, because that probably will be easier than growing a big piece of beef, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because of the scaffolding needed and everything. Or, you know, what about 3D printing? Uh, have people tried to 3D print meat, you know, instead of, you know, instead of using a scaffolding or using a scaffolding? I mean, what are the manufacturing methods that seem to be working best? Yeah, I think people are looking into to 3D printing meat, and I don't know anyone that's been able to, like, get a, a prototype out of that, but that's a potential means of growing it also. Um, when you're growing the cells within a bioreactor, you can take advantage of some of the scale of that process that has been developed by the biomedical industry, where you can have 20,000 liter bioreactors. And by the time you've grown enough tissue to fill a 20,000 liter bioreactor, you have certainly more than enough to make a burger patty. Um, and then the nice thing about growing cells is that you take advantage of their exponential growth. So you know, on, the, on the day that half of your bioreactor is full, those cells double over the course of a day, you know, by the next day, your whole bioreactor will be full. And so at, by the time that you grow a certain you know, quantity, you can start taking cells away from that um, and just relying on the natural doubling time of those cells to replenish the amount that you're taking away and forming into, into a product. Um, and that's for clean meat. In terms of plant-based meat, we're looking at new developments of both extracting plant proteins um, and forming them into different shapes and textures via twin screw extrusion and via something called the cuet cell that's kind of like an ice cream maker but for protein where you can put in a plant protein and water mixture um, and kind of stir it around in such a way that the inner portion of this device rotates and the outer portion rotates and that helps the plant protein fibers align and make something that's more of like a fibrous structure like the inside of a chicken breast. Um, So there's a couple of different ways just mechanically to create some of these structures either you know with plant protein or via scaffolding with with cells yeah do you think people will care you know once you get a product that you know again wins i'm just going to call it the meat turing test but once Mm -hmm. you get one that gets to that point do you think they're going to care what it's made of you know like people would joke that chinese restaurants would cook cats or rats i mean you know are they going to care what it again what a um this clean meat comes from if it's really really comes from cow stem cells or if it comes from a mixture of animals or if it comes from a mixture of plant and animal I think one of the things that we could do in terms of marketing that product is um, play up the ways in which nutritionally it's beneficial to include a mixture of plant and animal proteins. Um, so sometimes nutritionists or dietitians will talk about wanting to get a complete protein, um, wanting to get a protein that provides all of the amino acids that we use in our bodies. And uh, a good way to do that would be to combine a plant protein with an animal protein. Um, and we're also seeing this is a direction that both companies and grocery stores are heading in. So Sonic, the fast food chain, uh, has a burger now where it's partially beef and partially a mushroom, um, vegetable, plant protein component. So that's another way also that clean meat could end up achieving its price point that it needs to enter the market more easily. Um, right now, the companies that are making these kind of prototype clean meat products, it might cost 1000 or $2,000 when you're including all the R&D and the reagents they're using to make a burger patty. And obviously they need to decrease that by orders of magnitude. But um, one way that they might be able to do that is by combining a quantity of clean meat with maybe an equal quantity of vegetable protein, of plant protein. And so then being able to make something that 
tastes like meat because it has that clean meat component, um, but is more along the cost lines of plant protein, which is cheaper mm. to, to grow and produce than animal protein. Yeah, I mean, we already pay more for organic, you know, produce or grass-fed, pasture-raised eggs or, you know, chicken thighs or things like that. You know, I know my, my wife does that. She gets the good stuff. Um, so, yeah, I can see this happening. I mean, maybe, you know, not $1,000, but I could see, uh, you know, per pound in the store, if it's a dollar and if this is $5, that uh, a certain segment will adopt it, you know, when it's not exactly the same price, but, but a bit more, you know? Yeah, I think the initial consumer market that a lot of companies are looking at are going to be more upscale, maybe, you know, restaurants in Silicon Valley or in New York that want to offer this as both a novelty and to get at that customer segment that's willing to pay more. Um, the other possible customer segment that we could target initially with clean meat um, until it drops, until the price drops down to match kind of commodity chicken would be uh, the sushi market again, because sushi grade fish can sell for 20 30 even $40 a pound. Um, and if we're able to produce clean meat fish that mimics that taste, uh, then we would be targeting something that's a much higher price point and that would make it easier to produce, easier to reach that. That's true, yeah. So uh, where are we at in terms of uh, commercialization of uh, clean meat? You know, have you eaten it, by the way? And uh, where, when do you think we'll start seeing it in restaurants and stores and, and everywhere? I haven't had the chance to eat it yet. Some of my colleagues have. Um, if, you know, if you get a chance to tour Memphis Meats or to tour one of these companies, you might be able to uh, get a chance to try it before it reaches the market. But um, probably... You know, some companies have given different projections in terms of when they'll have a product in the market, but within the U.S., we are kind of in an uncertain regulatory landscape, so we're not sure how these products are going to have to be regulated in order to be uh, in grocery stores and available to consumers. So we're still probably five to ten years away from having something that you can buy in every Safeway or in every grocery store because we'll have to figure out what that regulatory process will look like. And in, in other countries, the regulatory process might be different. Um, food products in the U.S. have to go through a, you know, at least like a year-long um, process of being inspected and being regulated by the FDA or the USDA, and that might differ in other countries. Um, yeah, we still have some regulatory hurdles to overcome before we can get clean meat on the shelves. Luckily for plant-based meat, we have available now, and you can go out and try the Impossible Burger um, at restaurants. I think they have it. I think they have Impossible okay. Slider White Castle now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's impossibly bad. But, <laughs> but what about uh, kosher or halal designations? Do you, I, I know it's kind of off the wall question, but I, I guess I could see that happening as long as the appropriate people are able to bless bless the product, they can have those designations in the future, right? Yeah, that's a possibility. Um, I know some people on our policy team have talked to councils of. Um, Jewish and Islamic leaders, and right, it, it is a possibility that the growth process um, of a clean meat product would be sufficient to fulfill those religious restrictions. Um, and it's, from talking to rabbis, it's possible that you know that a clean pork product might um, be something that an observant Jewish person could eat. And mm. I think it's it's kind of a new technological area where they have to analyze the the growth process, analyze how the product is produced. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a possibility that because you're removing the entire slaughter uh, component of it, you're producing right. a product that, that falls under different kind of religious rules. Oh, you know, I should have asked you this in the beginning. This is not just really for people's convenience or taste. I mean, there's a lot of reasons 
that I've heard of that uh, this is like super important to make happen. You know, the resources used for raising animals and slaughtering them and the pollution. And, you know, can you give uh, some numbers on the effect of, of meat consumption worldwide, or at least in the U.S. or wherever you're familiar, and what, what kind of benefit this will bring? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We do think that this that both clean meat and plant-based meat are going to be better um, for the environment than than animal meat is, and better in terms of animal welfare, and also better in terms of um, global poverty and human health, uh, in that we can grow more calories on the same amount of land more efficiently and with fewer environmental inputs if we're growing plants um, as opposed to growing animals. Let me see what I can find in terms of um, numbers. So we have have done some um, life cycle analyses in terms of plant-based meat and how much water they'll use um, to grow those crops. Well, we could always add that in later. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. You know, we'll we'll edit that out. But um, <laughs> no, it's okay. I was well, trying to find have like a, a slide on that. Um, yeah, no problem. Well, um, you know, last last question or two. Where do you see? What do you think the first products are going to be that are commercially viable? Is uh, you know, like what's the top meat you think that that's in the most that people really need most to replace with uh, clean meat? Is it beef, chicken, you know, pork? Which one? Uh, is the most beneficial? Which one do you think is going to be adopted first? Um, I think chicken is one of the most important to uh, to replace in terms of how many chickens there are in the food system, um, the types of the types of contamination and diseases that come from the chicken production process, um, and how just how much chicken is eaten worldwide. Um, we can also look though that at the animals and at fish and see that uh, kind of per head, you know, per per individual, the number of the animals that are killed for food is more than the number of any other uh, type of animal killed for meat. Um, but I think, yeah, I think chicken and fish are going to be some of the first products to be replaced uh, on the clean meat side. Because a lot of people who are looking at growing clean meat um, are interested also in, in replacing um, some of the least efficient forms of producing animal meat and then replacing some of the ones that are the kind of cruelest in terms of how many animals are killed. Do you think that this may bring a lot of vegetarians back to the table to eat meat, so long as it's clean meat? It might, and a lot of companies are also targeting, um, you know, they're they're targeting traditional meat eaters or even people, you know, at, at least people who would consider themselves flexitarian. Um, there are some vegans who are eager to eat clean meat and some who wouldn't want to. Um, for the most part, the, the population that are targeting are people who already eat meat and who can be convinced to just replace that meat in their diet with, a cleaner with a plant-based product. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, any uh, surprising insights or unusual things that you've learned by being involved with this process by, you know, I got to make a joke again, by seeing how the sausage is really made? Yeah. I mean, some of the things that have been interesting to me are the the health effects of replacing um, animal meat in the environment. When you think about some of the outbreaks that we've had of things like swine flu or like avian influenza, um, a lot of times that disease mutates and spreads because of the way that animals are grown in open air pens and where you have one type of animal right next to another type of animal, um, like in countries where they'll grow pigs right next to chickens, for example. Um, and that environment is a perfect breeding ground for these diseases to hop from one species to another and then to change while they're doing that into something that's more virulent and potentially something that can enter into humans. So it's been interesting for me to look at how some of the biosecurity risks 
that we see in terms of pandemic diseases um, tie directly to the way that we grow animals for food and, and could be reduced if we have a better way of producing that protein. Very good. So what's the best way for interested parties to get in touch with you and to find out more about your work and the Institute's work? And, you know? Yeah, you can go to our website at gfi.org. And you're also welcome to send me an email um, at allisonb at gfi.org. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-B as in boy, gfi.org. Very website. good. Well, Allison, thanks for coming on the podcast. I, uh, it's been interesting. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.